Okay, we're going to move back into the book of Leviticus now. We've taken a break for Christmas and the new year. And um, today we are going to get into uh, what I'm sure you've heard the term kosher. And you may know that there are certain things like pork that Jews are not allowed to eat, that they have certain kinds of standards that they need to adhere to above and beyond what we might consider normal in you know, mainstream kinds of culture. So, a little bit of disclaimer as we start here today. Um, <clears throat> we're going to be talking about the law, the actual guidance that God gave, the boundaries that God gave the Jews. This is what separates the Old Testament men from the boys. And by what I mean, what I mean by that is that most people get into these chapters of Leviticus and decide they can no longer tolerate the Old Testament. And they skip to the New Testament because these are a lot of rules and repetition and it's overwhelming and we struggle to find relevance to our life today. And so if we can get through this and find meaning, I think it will add a lot to our understanding of Scripture when we can look through the, the, the thickest pieces of Scripture and, and be able to find some meaning in them. So what I want to encourage you to do There are two kinds of people when it comes to history. There are guys like Patrick, who now has said that he will wear Argyle because I I, I made a little bit of, of, you know, a little joke about some of the colors in his Argyle last week. So he's going to be our Argyle guy for a while. But I went to school with Patrick and he majored in history. And, um, you know, they're the kind of people who can look at, let's just say, the Civil War. Okay, and if you are a history buff, you can look at the Civil War and it's like, you know, um, on this day, Robert E. Lee had an ingrown toe hair, which inhibited his ability to wear his boot. And, oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, writing down notes that on February 3rd, 18, whatever, um, Robert E. Lee had an ingrown toe hair. And that's fascinating to you. But then there are guys like me who I can get caught up in the story of of the, the, um, the, the North and the South and, and the freeing from slavery and kind of the, the, over, the, the big picture of the Civil War. And so what I would encourage you today is if you're the kind of person who's getting lost in the verbiage of the rules, to remember that this is a story of not only God freeing the Israelites from slavery, but ultimately enslaving them through rules so that you and I today can appreciate the freedom from those rules. So we're going to look at the life that Jesus would have lived and find appreciation for that and then talk about how that's relevant for us today. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11. And if you want to follow along, you can either read from the screen or there are Bibles back in the back as you come in this, this little cinema area here. Um, and you're welcome to go grab one and, and follow along. <clears throat> so hang with me through this. This is some thick stuff. Chapter 11. This is the food section. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, let me, let me back up one more second here. And just if you're new, we're looking through the book of Leviticus. Most of 
the end of last year and all the way now out through Mother's Day. And Leviticus is the moment the Israelites had lived for about 400 years in slavery. All they had was a promise. God had promised their ancestor Abraham and his grandson Israel that he would make them into a great nation. Years later, they find themselves in 400 years of slavery. All they have is that promise. They don't know much about God. They just have some of the traditions that came from that promise. God sends in Moses and all kinds of plagues, frees them from Egypt, 400 years of slavery. Now they're wandering in the wilderness, and God is going to create them into a nation of his chosen people, and with that comes the book of Leviticus. So they're finding out now what it means to be the chosen people of God. Leviticus 11. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a split hoof, completely divided, and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a split hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, let me lower that a little bit if I can, or just talk like this. The camel is somewhere. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The coney, not the coney dog, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. That's probably a badger. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, man, though it is delicious, (laughs) though it has a split hoof, completely divided, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. Life without bacon. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Of all the creatures living in the water, the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales, but he goes on to say, no fins, no scales, lobster, shrimp, crab, none of that. Harsh. Moving down to, to verse 13. These are the birds you are to detest and not eat because they are detestable. Eagles, vulture, black vulture, red kite, any kind of black kite, whatever they are, any kind of raven, horned owl, screech owl, gull, hawk, little owl, cormorant, great owl, white owl, desert owl, osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be detestable to you. They are, however, there are, however, some winged creatures that walk on all fours that you may eat. Those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these you may eat any kind of locust, Katie did, cricket, or grasshopper. No thanks. But all other winged creatures that have four legs you are to detest. Moving down. 
to verse 29. Of the animals that move about on the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, um, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all those that move on the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. <clears throat> now it goes on to explain in greater detail. I mean, here's, here's the essence of what it means to be kosher. This is the kind of life that Jesus would have lived. You know, no pork, no shrimp, no lobster, those kinds of things. You couldn't go near it. You couldn't touch people that touched them. You couldn't eat them. You couldn't eat from a plate that they sat on. You couldn't eat from something that cooked, you know, a a pot that once cooked those in. There was an oppressive kind of diet that was prescribed to the Israelites. That's what it meant to be kosher. Moving on to purification. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred, Or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean, as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. So, a couple of things right there. Um, With as much restraint as I can show, For seven days, while a woman was on her monthly cycle, you could not go near her. (laughs) And (laughs) for a son, 33 days um, after she gave birth, off limits, 66 days for a daughter. Now let me explain something there, because that can sound a little bit chauvinistic, but it may in fact reflect a protection of the gender role. Now, in a culture, and this is just one thing where it's very, very different. In America, while I know that there are still many gender biases in place, I know that you know, men make a lot more money than women, and that deep down, you know, those stereotypes and things are still there. Um, one of the things that, that we see, though, is in ancient cultures, it was way, way, way worse. So what may have been the case there that's very hard in our translation today is that um, it, was, it was understood, pretty much historical fact, that when a woman gave birth to a little girl, the, the, the fact that this was a new female, she was seen as more susceptible to sickness, more susceptible to demon possession, more susceptible to, um, you know, oppression and, and, and things like that. And so there was this build in the culture where there was this extra need to protect and nurture a newborn little girl than a newborn little boy because they were seen as much more vulnerable. So it could be, while it doesn't specifically specify why God says a longer 
protection period for a newborn girl. It could be that by saying, now they're equal. Newborn boys and newborn girls are now protected the same. If God had said that, what it actually could have communicated to a very archaic culture was that God didn't care about girls. So sometimes when we read things like that, and it may appear that God is doing something chauvinistic, it's actually that he's taking people where they are and sort of letting out a message of protection and keeping the gender status more so where it is than doing something that might make more sense to us 3,000 years later, but that would have actually been sending out a message of, of devaluing a gender. So I just wanted to, to make that clear there. Um, and I'm sure that's crystal clear now. Now let's move on to chapter 13, and we're going to get some skin regulations here. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When anyone has a swelling or a rash or a bright spot on his skin that may become an infectious disease, he must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on his skin. And if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is an infectious skin disease. When the priest examines him, he shall pronounce him ceremonially unclean. If the spot on his skin is white but does not appear to be more than skin deep in the hair and it is not turned white, the priest is to put the infected person in isolation for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest is to examine him. And if he sees that the sore is unchanged and has not spread in the skin, he is to keep him in isolation another seven days. Now, on and on it goes through chapter 13. How to treat someone with what could be a contagious, infectious skin disease. And basically, they stayed in isolation and every seven days they were examined in hopes that the skin disease would go away. And if they didn't, they lived unclean and at a distance from people. Move on to the next section, to verse 47. And we're going to get to mildew now. If any clothing is contaminated with mildew, any woolen or linen clothing, any woven or knitted material of linen or wool, any leather or anything made of leather, And if the contamination in the clothing or leather or woven or knitted material or any leather article is greenish or reddish, it is a spreading mildew and must be shown to the priest. The priest is to examine the mildew and isolate the affected article for seven days. On the seventh day, he is to examine it. And if the mildew has spread in the clothing or woven knitted material or leather or whatever, um, it is a destructive mildew and the article is unclean. He must burn up the clothing or the woven or knitted material or wool or linen or leather article that has the contamination in it because the mildew is destructive and the article must be burned up. But if when the priest examined it, the mildew has not spread in the clothing or the woven or knitted material or the leather article, he shall, you see the the absence of pronouns in uh, in the Hebrew language. Um, he shall order that the contaminated article be washed, and then he is to isolate it for another seven days. Okay, <clears throat> there are some 
Those are some of what is called the law. The rules and boundaries that the Jewish people had to live by, that the Israelites had to live by. So the obvious question is why? What is so wrong about eating a pig? Why was shrimp off limits? Why all the regulations about cleanliness? Why 66 days in isolation after giving birth to a girl? Why was mildew so bad? Why couldn't they just wash it? Why all of those rules? I mean, can you imagine being a Jew in those days? Can you imagine living like Jesus where that was the culture? I mean, you're freed from Israel. Yay, we have our freedom. Thunk. Here's a whole bunch of rules that you have to live by. Well, there are a few things to think through lest we get lost in those kinds of rules. <coughs> the first reason that seems to have been present, and I think there's probably several reasons that God did all this. The first reason was this. These are the people of God now. Of all the nations on the earth, These will be set apart as the people of God. And the first thing that God did through this was he created a health-conscious society. Regulations about treatment of blood, mold and mildew, food, diet. These were things that weren't in existence yet. And God cares enough about his people to put some health regulations. Now, what he probably couldn't have done was begun to sit down and explain to them. I mean, can you imagine trying to explain to the medicine world 200 years ago why putting leeches on people wasn't a good idea? Okay, what he probably couldn't have done was sat down and explained to them why all these things were good for their health. Instead, he just implemented rules and forced them as a new people brought out of slavery with all sorts of traditions, forced them down a path of health. So I have a son named Elijah. And let me tell you for a moment about the time when I terrified him more than any other time. See, sometimes you can't rationalize people into making healthy choices. Sometimes you just have to implement rules and fear. Okay, so we have, when you walk into our house, um, there's, let's just say, 16 to 20 feet up to our ceiling because you walk into the foyer and there's the steps that go up and a little loft up there in front of you. So there's the foyer and it's open up to pretty much the roof of the house. And on this loft is a half wall. About yay high, okay? Maybe, maybe it's more like this. And um, we have, you know, then he was two years old, Elijah, and, and my wife and I were sitting in the kitchen, and Elijah was upstairs playing, and we hear, hey, Mom, come see. And it was clear enough that you kind of got the feeling of what might be happening. And I ran into the foyer and looked up, and sure enough, He is torso over the edge of that half wall. He had pulled Kelly's makeup bench over to the wall three rooms away to climb up on that and over that. I screamed at him to get down, flew up the stairs at a speed I'm sure was shocking to him, pinned him to the ground, and screamed at his face. The look in his eyes, he was horrified. 
Because what I knew at that moment I couldn't do was explain to him why that half wall was dangerous. I just had to ensure that he understood he was not to climb up that half wall. And if he did, he was risking his life in more ways than he knew. And he's never touched it again. And I hope that that remains the same. So God probably couldn't explain to this archaic people who lived 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, why some of these rules and regulations were good for their health. They would have no foundation for understanding that. But by implementing these rules, he instantly brought about a health-conscious people. Second line of reasoning has to do with separation. So the first line has to do with health consciousness. The second line has to do with separation. Okay, God was taking these people out of 400 years of slavery. So they were probably fairly integrated in Egyptian culture. But now he is removing them and creating a culture of his own. In Leviticus, he gives them holidays, festivals, rules, diet. There are certain things, certain ways that we eat in America, certain traditions we have that we've developed over 200 years. The Israelites had nothing. So what God does through some of the book of Leviticus is he takes them out, he sets them down, and he gives them a culture of their own with diet and health and traditions and holidays. That's part of the separation that God instantly creates for his people. But he also creates a different kind of separation that is birthed from God's jealousy. Now you remember in Exodus... One of God's first statements to the people of Israel after he frees them from slavery, he tells them, I'm going to tell you my name. My name, God Almighty, is Jealous. And he tells them that so they understand that above all things, God wants their attention. The God of the universe, he says, I am jealous. I want your attention. And I don't want you mixing with other religions. So by implementing this series of commands, God creates an exclusive family who could be devoted only to him. Think about this. <clears throat> if you couldn't eat pork or shrimp, and you couldn't eat off a plate that had ever touched pork or shrimp in the past week, and you couldn't shake the hands of people who had touched pork or shrimp or of a woman who was going through monthly cycle or any of that. You essentially could not interact with anybody except people who played by your rules. You couldn't go to the dinner table of a local region that didn't play by Jewish kosher customs. You couldn't interact with those people. And this is what God spends much of the first parts of the Old Testament trying to produce. He wants to protect his people as his own people. And he knows that when you interact and rub shoulders with people who have different cultures, his culture wasn't ingrained enough in the Israelites yet. He needed a time of separation. So he implements a system that kept the doors closed. Now, they were supposed to welcome in the foreign wanderers, 
But they were not supposed to go out and interact and mix and mingle because God is trying to protect them until they understand what it means to be a people of God. So when you're initially told, you can't be around people who eat pork. Pork is a delicious animal. And everybody else is eating it. So immediately he has a closed door society until it was time to do away with those rules. And then the final thing that God does, so we know he creates a health conscious environment. We also know that he he creates um, a separation with it, but he also creates an intentionality. He ensures that his people will not be savages. Now, over the past 3,500 years, there have been many nations developed or cultures or clans developed that have just been savages. But these rules ensure that people are careful with you know, hunting, with handling dead animals, with handling blood. These would be a people that would have built in their kind of faith DNA the habit of examining everything. You think about where you are. You think about what you touch. You think about who you hang around. You think about what you do. You are not to be controlled as the people of God by your impulses. Instead, you are, tro- you, you are controlled by the ways of your God. So through these laws, tedious and cumbersome as they may be, we see God laying the groundwork for the time when his son would come. And so let's move on now and talk about how this is relevant to you today. Because we maybe understand a little bit more about why God did this for people back then. But how is this relevant for you today? Three parts to this. The first is this. You and I, if we are followers of Jesus, we are no longer bound by those tedious rules of the New Testament. I'm going to be eating some bacon today. Um, Turn with me to um, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. This was written after the time of Jesus to followers of Jesus. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Now let me talk about an alternate translation here. When you're dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So this can be translated real skin. It's probably what Paul's saying. What was the sign of the Old Testament covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision is the cutting of skin. Okay? Paul's saying, when you were dead and in the uncircumcision of your skin. In other words, what he's doing is he's talking to non-Jews here. And he's saying, at one time you were sinful and the laws of the Old Testament you didn't even know about. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In other words, what he's saying is there was a time when the Jews and the law and circumcision and the things you did to be obedient to the law were the path to God. But through Jesus, that law was canceled on the cross. Galatians 5.18 If you are led by the Spirit, 
meaning you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and have received his Holy Spirit. You are not under the law. Now, the law is very specific to the book of Leviticus, to the first five books of the Bible, and those kinds of kosher rules. When Jesus came in Luke chapter 5, he says that, I'm coming, and he told them a parable of new patches and new wineskin. And he said, you can't put a new patch on an old garment because it'll shrink and rip the rest of the garment. You can't put new wine in old wineskins or it'll burst. And he was saying, basically, I am coming to bring something new to the table, to the people of God, doing away with the old. So clearly, all of those laws that we read about, unless they are somehow restated in the New Testament teaching, they are done away with on the cross. What that does is the second move here, the second relevant piece for you, is it ushers in an era where we are not controlled by law, but by love. Jesus said you love people and you love God, and all of Scripture rests on that. So now we don't go about our day trying to think through, oh, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. It's how can I love God and how can I love people? And then the principles in Scripture help us to do that. Now Colossians in the the New Testament goes a long way to say, we are forgiven of everything through faith in Jesus. Paul says, without blemish, without accusation, perfect, holy in God's sight, and that's how we live life. It's not like, well, today was a good day, so now I'm good with God, but today was a, but you know, yesterday was a bad day, so now I'm guilty before God. We live in a state of spiritual perfection without blemish. Doesn't make sense, and everything in our minds tends to want to say, no, it's got to be something about earning it. But what God says is that now we are guided by love not law. So we are free from that oppression of law and rules and able to, through Christ, live life based on love. And it's important that we own that because for thousands of years, people waited for that kind of freedom. And that brings us to the third piece. We live in a time in an age of grace where we no longer have to earn our rightness with God by doing things. We are given that rightness through faith in Jesus. It is a blanket, and it was paid for at his expense through his death on the cross. Think about the freedom we have. Now, Jews thought very much about their place in God's story. Think about for the thousands of years, think think about thousands of years ago, those 400 years in slavery. They didn't have the law. They just built pyramids for the Egypts, for the Egyptians. But then that was their part in the story which led to the Exodus when Moses took them out and made them God's people. But then for 1,500 years, they lived in the slavery of the written law from God. But that was their part in the story. That was the role they played so that things could be made ready for Jesus who freed us from those laws. 
And now we are sitting here in a cinema in the freest nation on the planet, maybe as the most free people to ever live, also free from the laws of the Old Testament. Complete and total freedom in Christ and the freedom of America to express that. Think about all the people who lived before us who never knew the kind of freedom we have. And I hope that we don't waste a minute enjoying, soaking in the grace that God has given us today.